Hello everyone and welcome back to another edition of the Shared Ireland podcast. So this morning, um, it is, what date today? You're asking the wrong person. I've lost all sense of time and space with this election campaign. Um, oh my God. I've kind of given away who, who the guest is already here. 25th. But this is Monday the 25th of, of April <laughs> and um, it's 9am in the morning and I'm sitting outside about, what, three, four mile outside five mile town and for anyone that doesn't know where Five Mile Town is, it's in County Fermanagh, on, kind of on the border between Tyrone and Fermanagh. Anyway, stop talking now and introduce your guest. <laughs> Delighted to be sitting in Emma D'Souza's front garden, basically, with the birds singing and chirping beside us. How are you, Emma? Very well. Lovely to be speaking with you. Thanks for coming. No problem. Um, I'm going to refer to you as an old friend of Shared Iron purely because you did a podcast with us previously. So, um, and it sounds better, an old friend, doesn't it? it does. <laughs> Emma, we're here speaking to you this morning because you are running as an independent in uh, upcoming Assembly elections. And this podcast will be put out on the Monday um, before the election and the elections on the Thursday. So, first question what's wrong in your head? <laughs> What, for running independent or no, for just going into politics for, full for, stop? For just going into politics. <laughs> I know. Look, it's, um, you know, it's funny uh, because, of course, my background is as a campaigner um, and uh, I did the case around the Good Friday Agreement and the right to be accepted as Irish. Uh, but um, in that, uh, prior to that case, which st- started in 2015, I was someone who was not politically active at all. I could not care less you about politics you made in up this for place. That. Right? <laughs> and, um, of course, had to become very politically active. Active, uh, to be able to take forward that case and to be able to get support from a number of political parties. And um, through that, I ended up finding that I kind of had a taste for it. Um, and uh, it's funny because my husband, you know, he has said to me, uh, now, look, you did not tell me when we met that you liked politics. Uh, and unfortunately, that's where we're at now. And my experience has taught me that, you know, even as an individual, you do have the capacity to make substantial change. And um, I think that uh, there's a lot more space for me to be able to make more changes. And this is what I was able to achieve outside of political structures. I believe that inside the political structures, I'll be able to achieve even more. So in the end, I'm going to go wherever I can enact the most change. Every time I think of you, Emma, and I told you this before we hit the record button, your slogan on your bio on your Twitter, I fought the law and one mm-hmm. i love that really <laughs> do for anybody that maybe isn't familiar with you emma and i don't imagine there'll be too many but could you give us a brief description of how you i don't how shall i word this how you came to kind of prominence in, in most of our minds when it comes to politics yeah i um i had a landmark court case around the good friday agreement and it started back in 2015 when i married my u.s husband jake And we began the process of bringing him through the immigration system here in uh, Northern Ireland. And in that, we had to apply for a visa to the UK Home Office. And in that process, we're told by the Home Office that I uh, could not access my rights as an Irish and an EU citizen, and I'd have to go through a route of accepting that I was British. Um, Back then, you know, I was very naive, uh, as I say, someone who wasn't politically active. And I thought that there was just some clerical error made in the Home Office. This is all going to get resolved really quickly. (laughs) I was so wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And that began the process of a very um, protracted um, 
piece of litigation. Uh, it went on for five years, which was the first five years of her marriage. And there were uh, plenty of occasions during that where we could have pulled out uh, because the British government made a, a number of efforts to try and get us to go away um, as the case continued to build a lot of support uh, from the majority of Northern Ireland's political parties to, uh, to Dublin, to Westminster, to Brussels, and then into the US as well. Um, as this continued to mount, they uh, they really would have liked us to give in. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had given a special status to my husband and we could have just dropped the case and went ahead then and lived our lives. But I was very acutely aware that what we had uncovered was a significant lack of implementation of a really important provision of the Good Friday Agreement. And I knew that there was countless families coming up behind us who were also going to be hoping to be able to break through a benefit from the case that we were taking mm-hmm. forward. And I wanted to make sure to deliver that for all communities across the North. So I took forward the case until we received a landmark concession where the British government did change UK immigration law so that the people of Northern Ireland could be accepted as EU citizens for immigration purposes. It has been called the first human rights case of the Good Friday Agreement. It's been considered a landmark high profile case. Um, And I can't say that I anticipated any of that was going to happen when I first put in that appeal back in 2015. Um, I had to become very political and I've always worked in a very uh, cross-party, cross-community, collaborative way because I had to try and get as many parties and as many voices into that space mm-hmm. to be able to agree on this being an important issue. And I think coming from a background where I wasn't politically active uh, and coming from an environment where I was raised with you know, no politics in her house actually gave me... Um, I suppose, the tools to be able to see things through a different lens. Mm -hmm. um, And I was able to take that forward with a lot of support. So basically, the story that you're only after relaying uh, to me there, that's where the phrase comes, I fought the law and won, because ultimately yourself and Jake did win. We did. and But not not alone did you win for yourselves, as you rightfully pointed out there, you've paved the way for others. Yeah, and that's been the best part. You know, like it was very hard on us. Uh, It came at great personal um, cost and expense uh, to be able to take that forward but we still get messages today from families who were able to be reunited and be able to live here in the north together because of the case that we took forward Tell me and this. there really is nothing better than that feeling. You, you mentioned expense there and that's something that actually hasn't dawned on me and I'm sure maybe quite a lot of other people listen to us. How much do you mind me asking did the whole thing cost? I mean the whole thing cost probably uh, in and around 80000 um, and wow. there is a there, look, there is an issue here about access to justice because of the fact that um, I've always worked full time. Um, it means that I was someone who was never able to access uh, any kind of financial assistance in terms of legal aid. Mm. And so the way that our judicial system works is that um, basically access to justice is limited in a way to either those that have lots of money and can take forward litigation because they have the funding to do so. Or if there are people that don't work and, and are able to come below the uh, legal aid the threshold, threshold to be yeah. able to access access it. So there's a, a wider issue there in terms of being able to access justice. Yeah, okay. What do you currently do for employment, do you mind me asking? Well, I do keep myself busy. Um, I work uh, for the National Women's Council of Ireland as the Women in Leadership Coordinator. Through that, I also do chair the All Island Women's Forum for Peacebuilding and Reconciliation, which is a project that I started through that position. 
Um, I also write for the Irish Times and a number of other publications, and uh, I do a bit of political commentary. I am the vice chair and Northern Ireland spokesperson for VotingRights.ie. And of course, I have never given up uh, my work around trying to get full implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. So I'm never not at it in terms of giving evidence in Westminster or taking it over to Brussels or the US to raise issues around post-Brexit rights and, and impl implementation of our, uh, our Good Friday Agreement rights. Many articles did you say you wrote last year before we hit the record button? Uh, just a little under 40 published last year, which um, I have to say I was quite proud, proud of in the end because I never anticipated at the end of our case that I would be going into uh, writing in the way that I have. Um, but it has been incredible uh, to be able to share my views and my perspectives on politics across these islands um, in that space. And I really enjoyed it. Very good. So I guess the main reason why... Uh, we're chatting this morning is, as I said at the start, you're currently standing for a member of the Legislative Assembly, um, MLA. Um, number one, two questions. Why did you decide to run and why as an independent? Good questions. Um, and look, there's several reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I was initially encouraged to run uh, up to about a year ago um, by someone who was involved in the Women's Coalition mm -hmm. and approached me and said, listen, you should run and you should run as an independent. And I was like, well, that sounds interesting. And I thought about it. I ruminated over it. I spent a lot of time considering whether or not to run. Um, and uh, ultimately, I came to the conclusion um, not too long ago, just shortly after I did a peace building conference in Enniskillen, where I came to the conclusion that, yes, there's more to benefit from running. And the reason I made that decision was I think that there is um, a gap in this constituency in terms of having a young, progressive, independent voice. And I think also that um, if we want to see more young people enter politics, more women enter politics, and to be able to see that they can do so without having to be part of a party political structure, then what better way than to demonstrate that through example? And that's what I'm trying to show uh, other people is that you can run and contribute to public life and you don't have to be part of the party to be able to do so. You said this constituency, how many seats are here? Pardon my ignorance. Five seats. Right. And uh, we have the longest ballot um, in the history of Vermont and South Tyrone with 16 candidates. Wow, okay. Um, so there's quite a few on there, although some of them would be, I suppose, considered paper candidates where they, they don't aren't necessarily going to be out canvassing and campaigning, but they'll be on the ballot. Um, uh, but there was this space uh, in terms of having a progressive independent. And the reason I went for an independent, um, you know, look, I don't think anyone that knows me would be surprised that I opted to go independent. Um, and I find that my it, it experience... It actually shocked me. It did? Mm -hmm. well, that, oh, not, no, tell me, who, where do you think I was going to go? Not that we know each other. So uh, I don't mean that like, you know, my best friend was only after starting as an independent. So it shocked me. No. I suppose we all feel as if we kind of half know people through mm. social media, even though we haven't got a clue, really. But um, it's because of your stance probably on Good Friday Agreement and stuff like that, which would be pro, you know, Good Friday Agreement. I just thought maybe your natural home would be maybe um, Alliance, SDLP or Sinn Féin. But yeah, there you go. I get asked these questions. I actually was asked this the other day when I was speaking to um, a voter in the constituency. Oh, I thought a good home for you would be uh, the Alliance Party. Mm. Um, and I've been asked, well, why am I not part of any of the parties? And my response is that um, I've always worked on a cross-party basis. I've always worked um, on a cross-community basis. And that I believe um, if I was to align myself with any one party, that would close doors. Um, and the only way that I can truly 
continue to work in the way that I have is as an independent candidate. And also, um, look, I know how the parties work. I've worked with all of them. Um, and I know that it would really, for me, in my own view, only be a matter of time if I was in a party political structure where I would have to back something I didn't necessarily fully support, mm -hmm. or I would have to drop something I thought was really important. And I have to say, I've proven myself, if nothing else, to be very principled. So um, for me, it just made uh, it made the most sense to be able to go independent, um, and that way I can continue to work in the way that I do. Um, it's bound to be difficult, um, Emma, being an independent you know, because you have no party machine behind you. And obviously that comes with finance, it comes with structure, people, you know, a group of people to help you, whatnot. How have you found that? Yeah, it is very challenging um, to run as an independent. You don't have a built-in base of volunteers. Mm -hmm. You don't have the financing of a party machine. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly in a constituency like Fermanagh and South Tyrone, it can be very challenging because this is a very large constituency. Mm -hmm. It's very rural. Um, and that has been a big barrier for me in terms of being able to access funding and being able to get people out knocking doors for me. Um, and it's required me to work extra, extra, extra hard um, in terms of knocking as many doors as I can because, look, in any of these campaigns, it's all about your ground game it's about speaking with people it's about you know being there to answer questions about your policies and i've really enjoyed being able to do that but it is definitely challenging um and um it can be challenging not just for myself but for others to see that as a viable option because of those barriers there's other little things as well like for example the parties get access to the, the electoral register a month before us independence so they have an, an advantage over us already and they've an advantage in terms of also media coverage too as an independent even though i'm an independent who i suppose has a a larger profile than other independent candidates you're still going to struggle to get mainstream um coverage in the media it's just not going to happen and that's been my experience too um, but what I've gained is full control over my policies, full control over uh, my creative outlets. And I've really enjoyed being able to do that. I mean, if you look at the posters we put together, I was able to do something a little bit different. Um, in terms of being able to design you just, you just a, stole all my questions <laughs> sorry in terms of being able to do it, uh, a poster that was you know not your usual poster i wanted to do something fun i wanted something interesting i wanted to have a bit of color in there and i also wanted to represent the constituencies so there's lots of little little uh, you know throwbacks to the area in terms of the stairway to heaven is in there and uh, all kinds of stuff i was going to ask you what was your inspiration for your poster but there for you go. <laughs> um, and then also um look i wrote my manifesto myself it's another thing too your so what? my manifesto, yes. like I wrote that manifesto myself. Just um, on that, what are your policies? And can you give us succinctly what is your manifesto? Well, my manifesto as an overarching theme is a rights-based future. Mm -hmm. And that's not surprising for anyone that's followed my work around the Good Friday Agreement because the vast majority of human rights protections under the Good Friday Agreement have not been implemented or have been poorly implemented. And I'm determined to Who see that agreement that, action. Or is it anyone's fault? It's not anyone party or person's fault but it is a collective political failure that is not acknowledged enough i mean since the good friday agreement we've had seven subsequent agreements and not one of those agreements has been fully implemented what happens is uh, you know commitments are made and they're not delivered and they're reworded and put into a subsequent agreement only to start the cycle of denial of rights once again and it's in my view a political failure that falls on the shoulders of the irish government of the british government and of political parties here i mean i've often talked about her case and why did it have to fall to a citizen to realize that a very essential part of the Good Friday Agreement had not been implemented and then had to take forward such a, a large piece of litigation to be able to defend that. Where were the parties? You know, why did they not see that this was something that had to be done? And so um, 
if I'm successful, that will be a really big part of my mandate is trying to um, actually deliver on what was agreed. But as well as that, I have big interests around educational reform. I really think that we need to work on uh, reforming the education system so we have a modern curriculum, so we have proper funding, so we have access to mental health services. All of these things are in my manifesto. And then for this particular constituency, there are significant issues around public transport. It is... <laughs> the rail network's good, isn't it? Oh, Jesus, it's a really bad system, you know. So the rail closed down in 1957. Mm-hmm. And we've had, I don't know how many reports and reviews since then. And I mean, we don't need any more reports and reviews. We need actual delivery. Mm -hmm. Um, But even just around buses, you know, there are several areas where there are simply no buses um, or there's one bus a week, you know, and uh, there's no GP in the place either. Can I just point out something? We're sitting here, obviously, in your beautiful home in the countryside. And I have two phones with me. I have a work phone and a personal phone and I've no internet reception. Yeah. And I have actually no reception on both phones. Yes. I mean, that's another issue as well around infrastructure, around broadband. These are really, really big issues that, that, that do have a detrimental impact on people's lives here. You know, And the thing is that I think we're missing a really big opportunity at the moment because as we begin to emerge from the pandemic, people are reassessing how they want to live and where they want to live. I mean, we are an example of that, having moved from Belfast out into Fermanagh um, during the pandemic and if we want to encourage more people to move into this constituency then we have to make it more attractive and more connected to the rest of the island if we brought in uh, you know more green buses then that in turn will be able to boost tourism it will make this area more accessible to young professionals who will be able to commute and it would also help us in terms of decrease decreasing emissions and reaching our climate targets so for me there's a list the length of your arm as to why public transport provision has to be a really key priority and in terms of the um, other candidates and for Manor and South Tyrone, I mean, it seems to be um, that for me, it's a key priority and, and others are not necessarily so focused on that delivery. Name the five sitting current MLAs here. Uh, okay. Colm Gildernew, Anya Murphy, uh, Gemma Dolan, uh, Deborah Erskine, and there's somebody from the UUP. Rosemary Barton. There we go. Thank you. Um, this isn't a trick question, by the way. And again, bear in mind you're not a politician yet, so don't give me a politician's answer. Which one of them are you going to displace? The third Sinn Féin seat. You're bound to be winning a lot of friends with Sinn Féin then. Well, look, uh, look, it's just, this is politics, right? So, and I'm sure the party knows that that seat is the most vulnerable in the constituency. And that's because it was won by a margin of just uh, over 60 votes the last time. So it is a very marginal seat. Um, and that it's not the, I'm not the only person that will be targeting that seat. Alliance is targeting that seat. The SDLP really like their chances for that seat. And that's because it's the most vulnerable in the constituency. And Sinn Féin will be fully aware of that. I mean, that's democracy. So may the best person win. Um, the other two seats um, held by the UUP and DUP, you know, unionism is incredibly fractured at the moment. It's more fractured than it's ever been. So yes, there's a possibility that perhaps a uh, an other or a nationalist may be able to get a fourth seat, fourth seat in this constituency. But um, I think it's more likely that unionism will hold their two seats that they currently have. I'm assuming you're encouraging people to use their vote. And what I mean by that is go down through the ballot paper. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, you're suggesting people vote Emma D'Souza. And I'm assuming, I'm putting words in your mouth here, but you'll soon correct me, that you'll be encouraging people to vote for all our pro Good Friday Agreement. 
candidates? Of course. Yeah. yeah, of course. Uh, and more progressive candidates as well. Um, look, there's a, but, a but great... But who, who is pro-Good Friday Agreement? And the reason why I'm asking that, because we yeah. all have our different opinions, like, can, can we honestly call the DUP now pro-Good Friday no, Agreement? No, we can't. Um, can we call the UUP? I think, uh, look, there's a, there is an issue in terms of the UUP's policies. Um, because as a party, of course, it was integral in putting together the Good Friday Agreement. Um, and uh, there are uh, some policies within the party in terms of, um, you know, where they stand um, that would be considered certainly more progressive than the DUP and TUV. But there are significant questions around um, some other areas in terms of their position on the Irish Language Act, in terms of their position on the right to be accepted as Irish and not British, in terms of their position on a woman's right to body autonomy. So there are definitely issues within that party. And for, um, and for me, even the seemingly inability to answer a straight question, will you take up the position of um, DFM if um, you don't become the largest party? Yeah, I mean, look, this is a really big uh, issue that um, really undercuts the concept of democracy. Well, well, um, you, you know, you took the word out of my <laughs> yeah. mouth. Yeah. If, uh, if Sinn Féin is returned as the largest party um, after the election, which I do think will be the case, if that happens, then even, if, <laughs> even when you're going to stay one of our seats, that gets seats somewhere else. <laughs> um, even if that happens, um, the idea that any other party would refuse to respect the outcome of an election is, in my view, really anti-democratic. So that does create an issue in terms of um, encouraging people to vote uh, into that into the, the UUP. Um, but certainly in this constituency, um, I'm encouraging people to vote for pro-Good Friday Agreement parties, progressive parties, and candidates who are standing in a progressive mandate. You know, And that does include, of course, the Sinn Féin candidates in the constituency. It includes uh, the SDLP. It includes the Alliance Party. Green Party has Kelly Turtle work, uh, running, and she's wonderful. So there's, there's lots of really good um, candidates in this area that people can vote on their ballot, and they really should vote on the ballot. It's really important to do so. And I think that... Um, Hopefully, I'll be able to put forward a positive case as to why people should vote down the ballot and why they should get out and vote on, on May 5th. Truthfully, what has your response been on the door? Truthfully, the response has been great. Now, I have to say I'm probably lucky because I have a little bit of political cover being independent. Mm -hmm. And I know that some yeah. party candidates will have received, uh, I suppose, more of an unwelcome response on the doors. And nobody can blame you for anything yet. Because Not you, yet. Because you haven't been elected. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I get that. Um, and uh, I have, I suppose, the benefit of high name recognition. Um, I have had quite a few people at the doors who already know who I am, who already know the case, who already know my work. Um, and I've had quite a few people when I've opened the door that have already said that I already have their vote mm -hmm. and that's been really uh it's hard to put into words how surreal a feeling that is and humbling it is it's uh it's really incredible um and then of course there are the people that need to be convinced uh so right, you know i'm gonna stop you there if you don't mind convince me and all our listeners now oh now hold on you're putting me on the spot let me get my pull in my canvassing spiel here for you <laughs> no look uh when i speak to people at the doors um there's a couple of things i put to them one is do you think that the party representatives and the political parties have delivered for you and your community over the last five years? And more often than not, the answer is no. Um, and this constituency in particular suffers from, as I was saying earlier, big issues around transport poverty and around access to health services. And every election cycle comes around, parties are promised in the sun, the moon and the stars, and these things are all going to get addressed. And the reality is this constituency is worse off now than it was five years ago. Thank you for that answer. Can I come back at you or something? Yeah. So you knock my door and you give me that. And I'm going to say to you, I accept what you're saying, Emma, 
but what can one independent do on our own? Oh, I like that question too, because people have this, uh, you know, some people have this idea that what can one person achieve? And I have, I think, quite roundly proven that one individual can make a difference. Very good. <laughs> and I have that come back at the doors. Um, mm-hmm. And I like to say, you know, if this is what I can achieve as an individual, what might I achieve with the added power of being in Stormont? Very good. Very but I also good. think that it's worth putting in also the idea that I think we need more independence in the assembly. I think we need independence to dilute the toxicity of politics. I think that we need independent voices because uh, we can act in a space of being, I suppose, a bit of an intermediary. We know how politics works here. It's really divisive. You know, if one party or one side brings forward an issue, there can be a knee-jerk automatic reaction against it from the other side. But I have found in my experience as someone who has brought issues forward that doing it from a position of being an independent means you can act in a much uh, more neutral space. And I've always worked in a way where I've been, I suppose, a unifying voice around delivery. And I think that uh, more independents in there can act in that way. And we've also seen uh, successful independents like Claire Sugden, who for a time held the post of justice minister because sure, neither side could agree who was going to go in there. So I think we need to have independent voices to be able to change the culture of Stormont. Yeah, earlier on, you mentioned um, you you know you want the education will be high in your list of priorities. Mental health, just touching on mental health, um, it's a bit of a passion of mine and the team in Shared Ireland because I suppose what we always say we are, we want to see constitutional change here. We believe you know for the past hundred years, the people on the island of Ireland haven't been served, um, and you know basically our economy has suffered now because of partition. Mm. But I suppose what, what I am saying is that there's no point having constitutional change in this new Ireland if people are taking their own lives, mm. if people can't see a GP, if people can't see a consultant. Um, mental health, you know, is a broad sheet. I know, I know, and this is why I'm interested in asking you this question, because you're not a politician yet. Uh, you know, you always hear the party line about, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to throw money mm-hmm. at it, and more needs to be done. These are all words. But, like, please tell me, Emma, what are you going to ensure is done for everybody listening to you and I speak now? Because let's be honest, we're all human. We all bleed. We all have emotions. And we all suffer with mental health to certain degrees. Mm-hmm depending on where we are in our life. Yeah, I mean, look, we uh, are, of course, a post-conflict society still suffering from intergenerational trauma. Hmm. And uh, my view on the conversations around constitutional change is it's actually an opportunity to reassess what kind of society we want to live in and what structures we want to live under. So I think it's a really important conversation for being able to look at what's not working and how we might change it. In terms of my own um, policies around mental health, um, it's all about being able to access these services for a start. But a big part of my manifesto is around uh, mental health access uh, in the education system and for young people. You know, young people um, have been, I think, you know, forgotten about during the pandemic and will be suffering in terms of their mental health. Then there's all the added layers Layers of uh, struggles in terms of their mental well-being and um, I think to, to tackle that I want to do a shout out to the work of Pure Mental NI who 
are doing incredible work around getting access to mental health services in the education system. They have five calls, um, and I have backed every single one of those, including a fully funded mental health strategy, including uh, you know first aid, mental health, well uh, well being, and training for teachers in terms of being able to have counselling services in primary schools. There's all of these things need to be done, um, not just one of them. And the thing about politics here is there are so many commitments and promises made during an election cycle and they just are not delivered. Um, and I just think that's appalling. You know, it's it's you're selling something and you're not actually following through on it. Um, for me, when I put something down in writing, I put it in my manifesto. I am 100 percent committed to being able to actually make that happen. Um, and in terms of also this particular constituency, there's also a, a big issue around um, the stigma of mental health. Uh, because it's a rural constituency and we have a big farming community and I think that we need to have a a campaign done around being able to break down the stigma of mental health uh, in rural communities. If you are elected, will you have a job to go to? There is a bit, I think, look, there's a, there is concern and valid concern over uh, whether Stormont is going to be functioning after the Assembly election. Well, well can I tell you my honest opinion? I know people didn't tune in to hear my opinion, but you're going to get it anyway. If Sinn Féin do come back as the largest party, categorically, there will be no storm. Because I believe that's one of the fundamental reasons why the DUP did bring down the Assembly, is because they could potentially see the writing on the wall. Mm -hmm. And, if, you know, they didn't want to show that as the number one reason for not working the institutions. So if Sinn Féin is returned as the largest party and designate as um, First Minister, I cannot see the DUP come back into the government. Yeah, I think that um, if uh, the DUP lose their vote share during this election, which is uh, widely um, considered to be the case through polls, um, and if, uh, you know, if perhaps the UUP was returned as the largest unionist designation. I could see... I uh, think they, they would I, go in. I absolutely agree. I, I do. And, and while Doug will not answer a straight question about yeah, if he would nominate as DFM, I believe that he would. Because yeah. ultimately, I do believe Doug is Democrat. Yeah. Um, so I do think that that you know, would be the case. If the UUP is returned as the largest unionist party, I think we will end up uh, having an assembly. Now, if the DUP comes in as the largest designation, uh, but say, for example, Alliance has made significant gains, then there needs to be a conversation over how the structures of Stormont are operating. Um, no party should be given a veto over the functioning of the assembly. And we might have to have a conversation over what way can we reform the structures to be able to facilitate actual governance. But Emma, that does not include rewriting. A Good Friday Agreement? Well, no, but there actually have been changes in the St. Andrews Agreement, right? So I think, and I am someone who supports going back to basics yes, of the Good Friday Agreement. 100%. You know, look, for example, at the St. Andrews veto, uh, which has been brought in and used time and time to be able to block progress on rights. And in my manifesto, I call for the scrapping of the St. Andrews veto altogether. Let's go back to basics and actually implement the Good Friday Agreement. Mm -hmm. Has the Irish government, well, I was going to say, has the Irish government a role to play here to ensuring that the, the Assembly is back up and going? The obvious answer to that is yes, of course they do. But what have they been doing in your experience and what do they need to do more? The Irish government is in a difficult position, I think. Um, they are, of course, co-guarantors of the Good Friday mm -hmm. Agreement. Um, and they do work, I think they work very hard behind closed doors to be able to 
try to keep the uh, the structures of the Good Friday Agreement up and running. But there's only so much the Irish government can do. And they're doing so, uh, you know, with a current British government that is really reckless when it comes to the Good Friday Agreement, that has selfish strategic interests at heart and is not concerned with the actual interests of the people of Northern Ireland. So there's only so much the Irish government can do. And of course, the Good Friday Agreement doesn't include any mechanism for if, um, you know, parties are not implementing it or not adhering to the structures. So there's a weakness in the agreement in that sense. Um, I think that if we enter into a space where there's uh, no assembly, uh, there's probably going to be a shadow assembly for a period of six months, and there'll be a lot of negotiating during that time, as is so often the way. And deals will be made, compromises will be made, and hopefully... But ultimately, does that not go back to the established parties? And again, what role will an independent play? Yeah, I mean, an independent, in my view... Um, can play, as I say, a role as, as an intermediary. Um, but also you're free from the, the restraints of party politics. The reality is there is a party agenda to all parties. They have their own objectives, their own agenda they want to push forward. And the reason why you didn't join one. Exactly. Um, so as an independent, you know, your only um, responsibility is to your constituents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was asked recently by someone, if I had a deciding vote, how would I decide you know how would i make a decision over which way to vote um what, what, what is the vote on but well here? they didn't give me they didn't give me <laughs> okay. a topic it was very broad um but they were they were basically i think asking if it was if i was going to make my decision based around religion or based around uh political allegiances i.e unionist or nationalist um to which i said that my decisions will always be based around human rights uh because that's always the way i've operated and it's about uh you know, the ECHR, the UN Convention, it's about basic human rights and delivering for all communities. And that's the way that I'll take anything forward. You mentioned um, education um, a couple of minutes ago. What's your stance on integrated education? I fully support integrated education. And I have a very uh, large section in my manifesto around educational reform. And that includes the expansion of integrated education. Um, why, why is it important to you? Because I think that we need to break down barriers between young people. And segregation is not going to do that. And also, if you look at the education system itself, uh, there was a piece of research done by Parallel Histories that looked at how history was being taught in schools here. And it showed that there's actually a disparity in terms of history being taught in st- state schools, Protestant schools, and how it's taught in Catholic schools. So we see in that Catholic schools are, are more often than not teaching the period of 1972 to 1998, but that state schools are teaching, you know, 1941. Um, so they're not learning the same history. And how can we expect young people to build a shared future if they're being taught two different versions of our shared history? So for me, it's really important to be able to put forward integrated education. I also am someone who advocates for removing religion from schools and put it into outside of school ours. Um, This is because, look, you know, we have a diverse society. It's continuing to get more and more diverse. You know, in our own household, we're an interfaith household. My husband comes from a Jewish family. And I cannot for the life of me imagine that if we ever had children and we decided we're going to raise them under Judaism, having to send them to a Catholic school and how we would tackle that in terms of having to, you know, deal with those issues. This is just one example of why it's important that religion is moved into an out-of-school space. Mm. I, I agree fully, by the way. This mightn't be too popular with people. That's okay. It's only my opinion, and it's only your opinion. But um, coming from our recent conflict, um, you know, segregation, and we as adults are deliberately mm. segregating our young people. And obviously, we all know young people, they're very influential, and, mm. you know, 
it's it's just madness on every level. It is. You know, why we simply deliberately saying you wear this uniform and you go to that school. Mm-hmm. Somebody else, same age as you, living potentially the street across the road from you, is going to another school with a different uniform. You know, what does that say to somebody subconsciously, subliminally? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it just, it's, it's madness. Emma, we can't believe this. We're nearly 40 minutes in here. Um, and I know you have a lot of doors to canvas. As you <laughs> said to me, this is the last full week it of is. electioneering. Um, tell me this. You don't drive. How are you going to get up and down to Belfast with with well, a great public transport here in Fermanagh? <laughs> are you going to um, take the train? I am going. <laughs> I am going to get buses. I tell you, buses and trains immediately, so I can commute. Uh, no. On a, on a serious note, and I, and you know, I, I don't mean this, you know, to undermine you. But is it not a disadvantage that you don't drive if you are going to be? Oh no! Come on, member? I'll get I'll get my license. You know, I've already got my theory test. I've taken lessons. It'll not take me long to get it through. Plus, my husband, being American, can only drive an automatic, so I will therefore also only be ever driving automatics, and it's a lot easier. So, uh, if elected, I will. I'll have to bite the bullet and finally get my driving license. Um, although uh, there is a decent enough at times bus. Uh, directly from Five Mile Town into Belfast, uh, mm-hmm. but it doesn't start until like nine o'clock, you know. So, okay. So, any questions on the floor for assembly? I'll just hold them back for you. They'll wait until about eleven <laughs> thirty, you know. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, okay, I'm gonna kind of leave you with the last word. What would you like to um, say to our listeners? Oh, that's a big. Uh... Oh, I'm sorry, I'll make it easy for you. Okay. Why? Why should people put number one? And for Manus after all, Emma D'Souza. Well, it's, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, as I say, it's still a bit surreal that I'm asking people to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that I've proven myself to be a very determined person who will act in a very, um, sort of, I suppose, um, an inclusive manner. Um, I'm part of the Good Friday Agreement generation. I'm focused on being able to deliver um, on, a, on the future and I'm not focused um, on the past. And I think that um, what I offer is something that we are lacking in terms of, um, you know, a young progressive who is not bound by party politics, who will be able to take forward the issues that are most important to constituents and who will also be a very strong voice for delivering on the Good Friday Agreement because we're, we are missing that. Uh, we are missing strong advocates for being able to actually take things forward and this is a time where we really need to have those voices because I think we're the Good Friday Agreement in my view is under immense strain at the moment but also I have a different set of experiences and I have a different set of expertise to many of the candidates in this constituency proving myself to be a very effective campaigner and if elected I am sure I will prove myself to be a very effective uh, member of the assembly um, and areas around the common travel area around post-Brexit rights around uh, constitutional law are all skills that I bring to the table that are perhaps lacking in some of the other candidates in particular in this area but also I think that um, the reason to vote for me in this constituency is because time and again the representatives of this constituency have promised to deliver on uh, a lot of really essential issues and haven't done so so people People are feeling very disenfranchised, disillusioned by politics. They feel like nothing is ever going to change. And I say to people that this is the most crucial time when you're feeling that way to go out there and vote for something different. And that's what I'm offering. I'm offering a progressive alternative to the people of this constituency. Just before I let you go, where are you from originally? Derry. What brought you to basically, and I mean this with the best possible <laughs> sense because I'm a country man myself, what brought you to the middle of Fermanagh where... Um, 
by your own admission, nobody can find your house. <laughs> yeah, uh, look, uh, we have three big, gorgeous dogs. Um, and we, like many people during the pandemic, were closed in back in the city and we wanted to have more space. We wanted to be more connected to nature. And what better place than Fermanagh? It is an absolutely gorgeous constituency. And we absolutely love being out here, you know, doing the, the growing the vegetables, doing the gardening. It and... is beautiful. It really is honestly beautiful. Um, and uh, sheep rolling is a thing that I do now too i yes i actually i'm ashamed to say (laughs) go on you're gonna have to educate me well no i I was um when moving out here i discovered that uh you know if you see a sheep on its back which you will uh quite often around this time of year um around lambing season that they can't get back up um and if you don't actually help them they can die in a very painful way Um, you the farmer I have I have adopted to my environment, um, but I was coming back uh, actually from my recent trip to the US and I saw a sheep that was um, on its back and I went over and I asked Jake to film it um, and I put it back up on his feet and away it went, didn't give me much thanks. But um, I then used this video and I put it out on my social media and I contacted local publications to try and raise awareness of this being a significant issue at this time of year and to encourage people that if you do see a sheep on its back, you can intervene. It's not going to bite you. Uh, just give it a wee push and get it back up on its feet um, and it's a really good thing to do. I say it's a bad sheep. day if you don't learn something new, but- but I'm genuinely very um, happy that you've told that story. Isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, sheep it's, rolling. Yeah, sheep rolling. Right. Um, I, I had images of something else there before, <laughs> before you explain that. One of the many things that I've learned uh, from moving into this rural constituency and something that can be really beneficial. Um, and I suppose just one other point I want to bring in there when you were talking about um, why vote for me, right, in this constituency, something else came to mind is um, that, you know, we are in a space where conversations are growing around constitutional change. And I think that that conversation needs to have voices like myself, people who don't ascribe to traditional labels, who don't consider themselves to be associated with uh, maybe nationalist parties or the na- a nationalist label. You know, before I spoke many times about not liking these labels. Um, and if we have more people like myself who um, are in the middle ground, who, who don't ascribe to these labels, but who are pushing for conversations or a constitutional change, that's really important because we act as a bridge to others who are unsure about the conversation and we need to have a much wider reach in terms of who we're having these conversations with. And that's why I think people like myself are important. A totally different conversation, but I'm glad you brought that up. Um, In reference to constitutional change, again, without putting words in your mouth, obviously we have to do the planning preparation. Mm. We'll have to do the groundwork. That's the importance of why groups like ourselves, Ireland's Future, and certain political parties will be calling for the establishment of a citizens' assembly to give us the, the facility to sit down and, and do the research and have a conversation. Mm-hmm. But before that's done, if somebody was to ask you a question now, would you be an advocate of constitutional change? How would you answer that? Yes. I, I wrote a paper last year on it. Um, I did it for the MAC around the future of this island. Um, And in that, I wrote um, a paper on my view around cultural issues, around education, around civic structures, around political structures. Um, I make no secret of being someone who advocates for United Ireland. I believe it is in the best interest for the people of this island. I think it will be a very cathartic process, Um, but I think that we need to really work on planning and preparing. And in my manifesto, I also include bringing back the Civic Forum, which was part of the Good Friday Agreement, because we need to have more spaces for more dialogue and also an all-island citizens assembly look i think we need to have 
that are, and it can look at topics that are impacting uh, people across this island, not necessarily moving straight into a space of, well, what will a United Ireland look like? It can look at issues around climate action, around education, around women's rights and equality. These are issues that are impacting people across the island, and we need to have more spaces like that for those conversations. So I make no secret of being someone who advocates for United Ireland, but I am someone who would not designate as a nationalist. Mm-hmm. I, I guess that, that's something that I always try to, you know, that make people aware of, you know, just because we have a citizens' assembly, it doesn't have to be mm. a one subject, you know, topic. Um, we because for me, it's about our future, and our future includes climate. It includes people's rights. It mm. includes all different aspects. Yeah. It includes you know the economy. Yeah, <laughs> it includes education. So it doesn't always, you know, people just get this image. Oh, all he wants is United Ireland. No, I want to have a conversation mm-hmm. about our future. So, um, yeah, you've been asked this question before, Emma, um, and I don't know how you answered it, but sir, um, we always ask everybody this at the end of the podcast, as I'm sure you're aware, if you could invite three people, dead or alive, to your fictional dinner party, who would these three people be? But more importantly, why <laughs> would you invite them? Uh, okay, well, I would invite Siobhan McSweeney because she's just the best crack ever. Um, I would bring back John Hume. Uh, because uh, I'd love to be able to pick his brain on peace building and reconciliation. And um, I really aspire to a lot of his principles, um, which would be no surprise considering my work. Um, and a third person, mm, well, Jacinda Ardern, why not? Uh, Jacinda Ardern the, uh, from New Zealand. Oh, yes. The Prime Minister. Yes, Prime Minister. Yes. yes uh, she has been a legend um, over the pandemic and has shown true leadership. And the way that uh, she has shifted things in New Zealand in terms of being a more inclusive parliament um, has been really important. And a lot of my work does also focus around getting more women in politics, having a more inclusive political space. And uh, she's done great work in that area. So they would be my three people. And, you know, I lived in New Zealand for two years. Oh, did you? Um, so I have to say now that they are great crack. And so. you didn't come across sheep rolling in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> I, it took for mana. It took the for mana ones to be able to teach me. Um, but yeah, so I think that uh, the three of us would have mighty crack. Sounds a very interesting dinner party. Emma D'Souza, thank you for giving up your valuable time in, um, 10 days before the election. It's much appreciated. Folks, if you have any comments to make on what you're only after listening to, please do so. Even if you disagree, we're always interested in them as well. Until the next time, take care, be good, bye bye.